Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. As he approaches his 15th year of sobriety, Carter Stout has looked back on the experiences of his self-destructive years in the fast lane in a memoir called Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. He grew up in extreme wealth and privilege in Washington, D.C. in New York City, the son of a socialite mother and an often absent father. Partying with the in-crowd led to addiction to alcohol and crack cocaine and a dangerous life on the streets. But he managed to beat the odds and has become a Los Angeles-based psychotherapist to Hollywood's A-list celebrities and billionaires. His book is published by Health Communications Incorporated, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Carter Stout to our show now. Hello. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Your childhood has been described as charmed. How would you describe it? Well, uh, in if you looked at it from uh, the perspective of the fact that I was uh, from an affluent family and I father grew up was a in, publisher. My father actually was a um, an entrepreneur who uh, came down to Washington D.C. in the late '60s and saw an opportunity to create a magazine called National Journal which he founded, which uh, for many years down in Washington was the Bible on politics before any of the other magazines really came out. And so I grew up in that environment. There were uh, a lot of politicians that would come by the house, and my father was um, very involved with that. Um, by most people's standards, I think it, w- it would look, uh, it would appear as though I lead a chi- uh, led a charmed life, but... Uh, what was missing really was the, the attention and the care and the love that I think all children really ask for and need. And you didn't have a nanny? <laughs> we did. We had, we had a nanny that we grew, and, and she, I consider Lily her B. Lily B, like my second mother. And uh, she really filled in the gaps. But, of course, I was yearning for the love from my mother and father. One of the early stories that you tell of your childhood is when you and your older brother, Craig, decided to run away. How old were you at the time? I was seven years old. (laughs) You ran away at seven? Seven years old, yeah. And you say it was uh, when you first tried beer and cigarettes at seven? I started pretty early, I have to say. Back in those days, you know, you could probably remember, at least in my case, my parents were busy doing other things and they didn't really supervise us very well and uh, my mother smoked my father smoked and we would uh, go into their closet and take their cigarettes and there was beer in the fridge and I had an older brother who was uh, my protector and a great great older brother but he probably was a bad influence on me and uh, we would sneak around and try things and uh, one day we decided that we wanted to run away and went and hung out under a bridge in Georgetown and drank and smoked and uh what impact what effect does beer have on a seven-year-old i it gets a seven-year-old drunk just (laughs) like it does an adult i got drunk and uh got scared because i was seven years old and what was i doing far away from home underneath a bridge with homeless people around me and uh it started to the afternoon became ominous and the clouds rolled in and it started to get cold and it started to rain and i said better go home. Hmm. So I don't know if it was a real running away, but more of a uh, of a fantasy that we were... A big adventure. Playing. A big adventure, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, you write about your parents through the eyes, uh, your seven-year-old eyes. Yes. Uh, some people might say, poor little rich kid. I know, I know, I know. Well, what's interesting is is my my practice now as a psychologist I uh, when I was getting my license I had to work for two years in a clinic that was based out of South Central in Los Angeles and I was working with a lot of um, of impoverished youth and and, and youth that was um, the product of drug addiction and poverty and and uh, neglect and when I worked with these boys, I have to say that I really saw myself in a lot of them because it didn't really matter where we came from. We were suffering from the same emotional wound of neglect. And uh, I think 
You know, I also now, as a psychologist, I treat a lot of people that are wealthy. And I hear the same story over and over again. It really doesn't matter how much money you have or where you come from. It depends on what kind of environment you grow up on in and, and whether your parents are really there for you in the way that you need them to be. One of the big differences in this is that uh, the poor kids watch their parents go to jail often or That's true. Uh, suffer in other ways, whereas the rich kids' parents were protected by their wealth. Protected in some regard, but my father almost went to jail. He was uh, accused of uh, a number of things in the 90s, and he left the country. Hmm. So well, he could he, afford to do that. Uh, he could afford to do that, right, right. So how old were you when you started using alcohol and drugs on a regular basis? I was about 14, uh, 13, 14 is when I began. I smoked cigarettes probably from, started maybe at age 11. Well, you can't go to the store and buy cigarettes. No, but my mother always had cigarettes around the house, and we lived in a smoking house. I mean, it was just, it wasn't like it is today. Uh, there were cigarettes and ashtrays everywhere all over our house, and my mother just allowed it. Mm-hmm. She just turned a blind eye to it. And I started drinking and experimenting with other drugs when I, w- when I went off to boarding school. And uh, I went to a place in New Hampshire called St. Paul's School, which is a very, once again, a very privileged school. And many of the friends that I met were from New York City. And New York City was a much faster crowd than we were in D.C. And I just really looked up to these guys. And... Uh, I would come to the city on vacations f- over the holidays, you know, the spring break and, and uh, Thanksgiving holiday, and I would come and spend times in my, uh, time in my friends' apartments, and we would always go to Central Park, and we would score. We would get whatever was available, usually pot or sometimes cocaine, and there was always liquor around, too, and we drank, and so that was really when it became more active in my life, and we used to bring it back to boarding school, and you know, there was a f- the fair amount of, uh, of pot up there as well. So, And what did you feel the, these things were doing for you? It, it, well, at I mean, that— Cigarette smoking, I, I smoked for years. Yeah. I quit finally because I got tired of having bronchitis every winter. I know, I know. Um, well, I think at that young age, it was a combination of a real romanticized notion that what we were doing was rebellious and uh, counterculture and anti-authority. And we were going on an adventure. We were exploring the regions of our minds. We were um, old enough to be independent and autonomous and do these things ourselves. And we would go to Grateful Dead shows and take acid and, and, you know, um, there was that part of it, that romanticized part. But also for me, um, my addiction really actually stemmed out of uh, uh, having an eating disorder uh, pretty early on as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy growing up in D.C. in the early 80s. And it was not something that was very common. And it was something that I hid. But the the energy of that disorder is very similar to the energy of other addictive disorders. Well, you kind of suggest uh, that uh, all addictions have some things in common, whether they're about food or, or gambling or shopping or sex or the Internet. I believe it's true. Well, the, the, the brain works in, in, in the same way, ultimately, or the same chemicals rush through our, our bodies? Well, that's the way to look at it, certainly, physiologically. Uh, that there are neurotransmitters that are released in our brain. There's serotonin, there's dopamine, and we get those hits when we do certain things. Um, If you want to look at it from a different psychological perspective, I studied a lot of Carl Jung when I was getting my doctorate, and uh, the the philosophy of depth psychology would, uh, would lead to a hypothesis that addiction is archetypal energy. It's something that's out there in the universe, in the collective, and that all of us share it. All of us know it in some capacity, whether we have uh, an addiction to our telephones 
or an addiction to food. Well, or, everybody seems to have an addiction to telephone. It I don't seems know. like it. You're in L.A., but if you go on the New York subway, you can uh, spot the people who aren't looking at their phones a I lot know. easier. That's quite remarkable, right? No, I was uh, just uh, here in Brooklyn yesterday with my wife and kids, and we were on the street corner, and we saw a man walking across the street in heavy traffic, and he was looking at his phone, and he almost got hit by cars going either way. And I think that people are really magnetized by their phones now. They're enchanted by their phones, by <clears throat> all of the things that they can do on them, these little mini computers we carry in our pockets. So I would argue that that addiction is not different psychologically than an addiction to alcohol or an addiction to food or an addiction to to sex or an addiction to work. You know, it's, it's the same energy that we experience, that we feel. And I can speak from a, from a, from a perspective of having this energy in my life uh, for, for many, many years. And uh, your eating disorder, how is that related to all of this? Well, it was the same type of loop of obsession and compulsion as addiction. So it is the obsessive thought that is followed by the compulsive action. So obsessive thought in the case of the addiction, I got to get high. The obsessive thought in, in regards to the eating disorder, which is I either want to not eat and restrict my food because I want to control how I look or I need to purge my food. I need to get rid of it. And so that's the thought. And that thought doesn't go away until the compulsive action of doing so. And it's the same with the addict who says, I, I, can't stop thinking about the drug and I need to go get it. Where can I find it? I need to get money to get it. I need to get high. And it's this continual loop of, of invasive thoughts that are only completed and stopped when they actually get it score and they get their fix. So that's the compulsive action. And you say that uh, you uh, got the, your, the drugs uh, when you went around with your friends. So there's, there's also a social side to all of that? Very much so. In the beginning, it was. Mm -hmm. Very much so. It was, as I said before, <clears throat> experimental. There was a group of us that uh, really enjoyed the, the high, the experience. We had a lot of fun with it. Um, but even from an early age, I started to have some negative and bad reactions. <clears throat> I, I got very paranoid when I smoked pot, and then... It, I took mushrooms one time, and I, uh, I had a bad experience, and I felt like these demons were chasing me, and you know, it was a, they say it's a bad trip. But f even from in my teen years, I started to see that the effects of these things were not positive for me, but I continued. And what, what did a typical day look like? A typical day as a teenager? Yeah, w when you were going through all of this, if, I would have thought that I'd be scared off of uh, doing this if I was having hallucinations that were, uh, that were really destructive. Right. Well, I think that deterred me from wanting to take mushrooms for a while because I didn't want the monsters re to return. But the typical day, I mean, it was fairly typical, I think, for a privileged um, person of, of my background going to boarding school. You know, we went to, we got up in the morning, we went to chapel, we went to class, we, uh, would do our homework, and then at nighttime we would collect in someone's room and and probably. But was it making you feel good on some level? The I think the social aspect of it was making me feel good. I felt part of something. I felt like I belonged to something. I felt like I had a group around me that was uh, insulating me from some of the pain that I was in from my childhood, and that felt that felt good. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on. WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. I'm speaking with Carter Stout. His book, Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. Now, it's not Carter with a T. It's Carter with a D. It's Carter with a D. That is correct. That is my... I, that's the first time I've ever seen that It's name. my grandmother's maiden name. Her name was Maxine Carter, and so I was named after her. She's a wonderful matron of our family, and... Uh, who passed away when I was about 12 years old. But uh, she was about five feet tall, but had the energy of, of someone who was 
much larger of stature, shall we say. <laughs> what were some of the strategies that you came up with to get the the money that you needed each day to, to buy something like crack cocaine? Well, w- what I talk about in the book is this experience that wa- is a- extremely unique. Uh, and I, it's hard to believe sometimes that I actually lived it and went through this. And I knew that at some point in my life, I really wanted to write it down and tell the story and share it with others uh, as a uh, as really something that was cathartic for me and something that was uh, a release and therapeutic, but also because I felt like my story might be able to provide some hope for others that were dealing with addiction, that were struggling. And- um, We're trying to understand what a loved one is going through, yes. which we'll get to later. Yes, well, we can get to that later. But but when I was in Venice, I was really... We're talking about Venice, California. Venice, California, yeah. The, the present tense of the book, Lost in Ghost Town, uh, takes place in Venice, California in, in the year 2003. And the term ghost town is what the addicts used to call... At, a certain neighborhood in Venice that was called the Oakwood neighborhood. And they called it Ghost Town because there were so many ghosts walking the streets of the of the addicts that had, had passed away. And so it felt like it was haunted. So this but, was Venice. But you moved there after you'd been uh, in rehab for 28 days yes. at the Promises Treatment Center I did. in Malibu. Yes. Um, did you get anything out of that? Because uh, you wind up moving to an area well, I think where that, there's a lot of <laughs> drugs yeah. being sold. I, I, you know, I'm not sure that I was ready at that time in my life to get sober. I think the idea of sobriety to simplify my life because being an addict is really it's really difficult. I mean, it's it's traumatic. It's really hard work. It's uh, physically. Uh, extremely taxing on the system. So when I think of my 28 days at Promises, I always joke that it was like a 28 vacation, 28 day vacation from my using and just giving me strength so that I could start the next run. So you never took it seriously? You never really hoped that you might just be free of your addictions? I wasn't free of all of the resentment and the anger and the pain yet that I really was holding on to that I think was fueling part of my addiction. And so uh, all of the treatment in the world really wouldn't have worked quite yet on me. And I, my intention when I got out of, of rehab was to stay sober, sure. And I was going to meetings and I was in 12-step programs. But then I arrived in Venice not really knowing that it was the epicenter of the crack cocaine trade on the west side of Los Angeles that was run by the Shoreline Crips. I didn't really know that about Venice. And within a few weeks of me living there, I had a very, very small little postage stamp studio apartment and with barely any furniture in it. And I was walking up Abbott Kinney, and this uh, drug dealer approached me. I had no idea. I said, and, and she asked me what I needed, and you know, from that point on, once I got high for the first time, uh, the, the floodgates opened up, and that's when the story of this book really begins. But, you, but even earlier, you talk about uh, finding ways to pay for the drugs. Uh, right. Things like you had strategies like looking for discarded items. Uh, yes. When people yes. were moving. Yes. We, uh, whenever you saw a moving pu- a truck out in the out in the hood, out in, in Venice, that was always something that uh, the drug addicts were, that their antennas perked up because you knew that whoever was moving was going to leave some items maybe in the back alley. And there was always the opportunity, too, when they were inside to hop on the moving truck and actually take some stuff off. And one time uh, we took some some speakers off of a moving truck. Other times we would rummage through the uh, whatever was left in the back alleys, and find CDs that were you could get two or three dollars for each of them, and there so was you a, had to sell ten of them to to th- pay for a fix. Ten, yeah, ten of them, and uh, and there was a uh, on Windward Circle in Venice. There was a local uh, independent um, music store that would buy CDs for like two dollars mm-hmm. a piece. So we would go down. I mean, any anything that we could barter, we would we would use. I I sold all of my clothes. I sold 
uh, some silver candlesticks that my grandparents had given me uh, that I had, you know, pretty much anything that I could went out the door uh, to feed the habit. Your friend, the, the playwright and actor, Jonathan Mark Sherman, wrote the foreword yes. to your book. Uh, who is he to you? Jonathan Mark Sherman is a, a beautiful, beautiful man. He's one of my best friends and has been for, I want to say, 25 years. So and during your addicted time. Jonathan and I met in New York. We both lived in downtown New York. He was the young playwright for Ethan Hawke's theater company, Malapart, at the time. His most recent and thing is uh, he wrote the theatrical version of Bob and, and yes, Carol and Ted Now That I'm going to see tonight. Uh-huh. Yes. And Jonathan was there last night. He wrote the foreword. He is, he's somebody who he and I both struggled uh, with uh, addiction at the same time. And we um, became like brothers. And uh, he has always been a beacon for me, um, somebody who's been an inspiration. And he got sober before me, and he really was someone who um, reached out to me and supported me and guided me towards getting better. Yeah. You asked him if he might not want to reveal his name in the book. Yes. Why do you think he decided to, to to let people know that he'd gone through this. Well, I think Jonathan is is very much of an open book, really. He is uh, he's done so much um, work on himself, and is doesn't carry around any shame or any guilt or any negative feelings about that time in his life. And I think you know, for many writers, a lot of our best writing comes out of the distress or the pain that we've experienced ourselves and I think he uses that as I used it in my book but you know Jonathan is um, he's a he's a lovely man and he is so generous and kind and uh, it's so wonderful to see him doing so well now and uh, did you reach out to other old friends to find out uh, things that you might have forgotten or find out how they viewed what was going on? Well, I, I certainly have talked to so many people about their impression of, of what was happening at the time. And the time in New York, I think that Jonathan and I were <clears throat> maybe the, the two that were uh, teetering closest to the edge at the time. Um, Where were you going for drugs in New York? Because you were living in Soho. We I were living know. in Soho, Yeah. We we had some dealers that we knew, and we would go to these clubs that were in Soho called Wax and Spy, and there was one called Sway, and they were usually people there that had cocaine, and we would uh, we knew them, and it was easy to get, and then we had some people that would come deliver, and it was you know the the real problem was finding the money to 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 get it because we were always broke. <laughs> Your family had cut you off at this point? My family hadn't cut me off, but I didn't have a lot of extra money. So we would, uh, you know, I, I, when I think back on that time, I, I lived in this beautiful apartment on King Street and that, my, of course, my family had, had bought for me. But I didn't really have money to live. And so it was a lot of turkey sandwiches and coffee from the deli. And... Uh, and, but we managed, you know, we managed to scrape together the funds, and we would we would go out and we would, uh, you know, stay out all night, m- many nights in a row. And I look back on it compared to the time that I spent in Venice, almost uh, with affection, <laughs> because it was before things got really bad. They were they were starting to get dark, but they weren't really. Well, they were getting dark for you, but they were. Soho is not like the Venice. Uh, the ghost town in Venice Beach that you describe in the book, you write, this was the epicenter of drug activity in the hood and all of the characters who came with it. There were the junkies looking to score, the scammers looking to swindle, the hustlers looking to gain, and the dealers looking to get you hooked. They had become my tribe. Yes, yes. So you were all of those things or to varying degrees? I believe so. Uh, I was peripherally involved in all of those things. Well, you I, dealt drugs, didn't you? I did. I did. 
I became a dealer. Uh, I was, certainly was a hustler. I was a scammer. Um, and I was a, an addict. So I think all of those things are certainly fitting um, as labels to, to who I was <clears throat> at that time. I, uh, but, but Ghost Town uh, in Venice at that time was really, it was a frightening place. It was such an interesting neighborhood because it was a hybrid of so many different cultures. It was the, you know, there were the artists, the hippie artists that lived there and the beatniks that were, and the surfers, the surf rats. And, and then there were uh, immigrants and there were African-American families that had been there for a long time. And, but the, the most dominant presence in the neighborhood was the Shoreline Crips. Mm -hmm. And that was their stronghold on the west side. And they had, their numbers were staggering. They had, uh, I would, you know, at least 100 or 200 young members that were on the streets in Venice. And you became a driver for one of the senior members of I the did. Shoreline Crips, a man named Flynn. Yes. He was a drug dealer? He was a drug dealer. And he and I met because I the, the last possession that I really had to my name was a, a car. It was an old Ford Taurus sedan, and he needed a driver. Um, he had gotten out of prison about a year earlier and uh, didn't have a license. He needed someone to take him around. I had a car. Someone vouched for me. They introduced us, and he said, well, let's give this a try. And what I found, and, and it was an opportunity for me because it was getting free product. He would pay me with product, and he actually ended up paying me with money as well as we had, uh, developed our relationship further. But, but he was not your typical drug dealer. He was this drug dealer who was brought up by his grandmother. Beatrice. Who, Beatrice, who was a, a, a wonderful figure in his life who was a, a religious woman, a kind woman, family-oriented woman. And she taught him to, she was always putting a book in his hand, teaching him to read. He uh, loved Catcher in the Rye, the book, as, as well as I did. We would talk about literature while we were driving around. He, he was a, a kind-hearted, intellectual, spiritual guy so he wasn't really your typical drug dealer and the two of us just hit it off you know sometimes you meet someone that you really feel simpatico with and and the two of us just became friends and it was almost like a brotherhood that uh ensued from there and beatrice uh you write uh, had a warmth that made you think uh, about the differences from your own mother yes um uh, what was uh, the one thing that Beatrice asked on the first day that you met? Beatrice asked me to look after her grandson. Uh -huh. She did. She she was very welcoming and inviting to me. And Flynn actually wasn't there yet. She brought me in. She fed me. She spoke to me. We talked about God. And she said, whatever, whatever it is you're doing with my son, please look after him and take care of him. And I made a promise to her on that day that I would. Well, did you feel like you had hit rock bottom at this point? I... Or was Flynn a way of your getting out of being at rock bottom? One would think that if an addict start, met a drug dealer and the two of them forged a friendship and began dealing drugs out on the west side of Los Angeles together, that that would be a real... That that would continue to fuel my addiction or one's addiction. But interestingly enough, what ended up happening was the inclusion of me into Flynn and Beatrice's family and the love that they bestowed upon me and the generosity and the friendship was something that really had escaped me from my own mother and father. And it, it touched a place in me that wanted me, that, that brought out the best side of me again. It made me, reminded me that I was a good person and helped me ultimately to find the desire to want to get sober. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
Back with my guest Carter Stout. Uh, he has written a memoir uh, called "Lost in Ghost Town: A Memoir of Addiction, Redemption, and Hope in Unlikely Places." It is published by uh, Publisher. I was underwater. Communications yeah, Incorporated. Yes, and and uh, printed and distributed by Simon and Schuster. So, you uh, so. Flynn and Beatrice, uh, in a way, help you break the cycle of addiction. And you started going to, you went to another treatment center, this one in uh, New Mexico? I did. Uh, after, after I left Ghost Town, which I won't spoil the ending of the book uh, because I want you to go out and buy it. Uh, the, the oh, the fun is still, the trip is, is the fun. <laughs> yes, the trip is the fun. The, uh, Forgive the, the, the terrible uh, drug uh, pun there. Right, right. The but things got very frightening at the end of my time in Venice, and I had to leave very quickly. I'll just say, and and narrowly made it out, and wound up going back to treatment. And this time, I went for four months in a row to uh, first a facility in Arizona, and then one in New Mexico, Santa Fe, Santa Fe. And was this different from previous rehab experience? It was different. The focus of the treatment at the first facility I went to was on trauma. And I had never even thought that I possibly could have any trauma. I thought of trauma as someone who'd, you know, witnessed a witnessed a death or had been in battle. Uh, or had been in an earthquake, and as it were, as I learned more about trauma, there, they, what I, what I was taught was that there was a psychological and emotional component to trauma as well, and that uh, that you didn't have to be in some natural disaster to be suffering from PTSD. There was emotional PTSD, and oftentimes, um, what would look like a privileged background really uh, was marked by uh, someone being the recipient of trauma, and that neglect is a trauma. Uh, and and so the therapist there began to treat me for this emotion, this this real emotional wounding that I was holding on to, and began to excavate that, and that really made such an incredible difference to me. It, it felt as though I was releasing uh, thousands of pounds of, of distress and, and, and unhappiness. So it, does it depend on the, the doctor who is treating you as Certainly. much as anything? Or, or the philosophy of the rehab center? Yes, well, the, the rehab center the, was called The Meadows, and it's a very well-known one. It's in Wickenburg, Arizona, and it focuses on trauma mm -hmm. and that's the model that they use the uh but you as you say you didn't think you had experienced trauma i did not so you had to be convinced that you had i just had to be educated about it more i just said wow yeah and then from that point on when i went to new mexico i did more trauma work something called emdr which is really about going into past memory 
that you've repressed and trying to unlock those memories and maybe forming a different perspective around them. So were you now totally free of your addiction to, to drugs and alcohol? I never did drugs again, but I had a few, uh, had a few drinks. Um, and you drink wine with a meal? Uh, uh, no, I, I drank beer and I drank a little bit of wine. And then ultimately, uh, I decided after about a year that that wasn't working for me anymore and gave that up. And that was about, and during that time, I, I knew that it wasn't really safe for me to come back to, to Los Angeles because of the people that I was running away from and just the environment. And, Several people while I was in treatment encouraged me to look into getting into a master's degree program. And <laughs> so I went from treatment to applying to a, a master's degree in psychology program at a place called Southwestern College and ended up getting in. Well, was it difficult uh, to get into a school with a history like yours? Uh, didn't they ask you? what you've been doing all of those years? Well, what's interesting is that most psychology schools and, uh, and, and, and most of the ones that are progressive have a fairly tolerant uh, process of, of looking at applicants and candidates because the best therapists, I believe, are the ones that have come from instability or wounding or difficulty in their own lives and and that can look like any of a number of things but for me it was addiction and i believe that educators that teach in these uh, and administrators of these psychology schools recognize that um, somebody who is an addict who's in recovery may be the best person best suited to be working with addicts in the future so that's led you to Take, go into the program that you came into. You could have studied literature or I could have. I history could have. or whatever. You but, know, uh, I had some therapists that I worked with that were so instrumental in my healing that it just, it was really inspiring. Something really unlocked in me, and I began to forgive my mother, forgive my father, let go of all of that anger that I had, all of the sadness that I had. And once I released that, I felt like... Uh, anything was possible, that I was capable of really living up to my true potential. Well, how were you paying for this? Hadn't your family cut you off financially? I, when I got out of treatment in Santa Fe, I worked two jobs. I worked at a uh, restaurant, and I worked at an art gallery. And I found a sublet in town that was $300 a month. And I didn't have a car. I rode around on a bicycle, and it was zero degrees in Santa Fe. didn't give you any money. Had no money from my family or support. I took out student loans. And from that point forward, I was on my own, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. You also worked as a casting director and a producer in the film industry. I did. I did. And I suspect that that uh, wound up leading you to some of the clientele you had later when you became a, a psychotherapist. It did. Yeah, it did. I uh, Previous to when I was living in New York City, I produced a few independent movies and became a casting director for, um, for some of the Warner Brothers projects that were happening. Um, we had an office in the Warner Brothers Suites, and I worked with a woman there who was a very, very prominent casting director. And I met a lot of uh, young actors and directors in New York City at that time. And this is after you left school, or during while you? This were going? is this is this is before I left New York mm-hmm. uh, and moved to Los Angeles. So this was in the '90s. So I produced movies in the '90s. I was a casting director in the '90s, and that uh, was when I was um, hanging around a lot with Jonathan Mark Sherman and the other folks in Malapart, and I. Uh, but when I moved to Los Angeles, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to try and produce some projects that ended up never getting made. And it really began to fuel my self-doubt and my self-loathing and mm-hmm. my addiction. And that's when I went to treatment for the first time. But then you actually wound up 
being trained to be a psychotherapist. Yes, yes, I. That's, um, a, that's a grueling training, isn't it's it? It's a grueling training, and I'm not only a psychotherapist, but I'm also a psychologist. So, uh, I earned my PhD in psychology. Um, You're what's called a depth psychologist. Depth psychologist, yes. What does that mean? Well, a depth psychologist is someone who is more uh, interested in the philosophy of Carl Jung and is interested in what is going on in the unconscious rather than what's happening in the conscious mind, believing that because the unconscious is really about 90% of our psyche, that if we try to uncover the mysteries of what is happening below the surface, we can usually get a good idea of why somebody is thinking what they're thinking or why they're behaving the way they're behaving. But uh, for Jung wasn't the only psychologist who believed in the, no. the, the power of the unconscious or the subconscious. He wasn't the only, but now, you're he also was... a dream analyst uh, in yes. a Freudian sense? In a, in a Jungian sense. <laughs> yeah, in oh, a so Jungian you're a Jungian. Uh, I, I, I'm a depth psychologist, so I, 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 my practice is really a hybrid of uh, different theoretical orientations, but I am a Jungian at heart, yes. I believe in the soul. Jung believed in the soul. He believed that the soul was a, the most authentic part of ourselves, the, the, the most genuine part, the most spiritual part, and the soul constantly was communicating to us, and it's just that most people didn't understand the language of the soul and were cut off from that idea that we had a soul, but he very much believed in the soul, and I believe in that as well. But he's also a problematical figure. So young? young? Yes. I think most people are. <laughs> I, I, I think we all are, and to some degree. How can analyzing our dreams help us to become healthier? For most of us, uh, I mean, I'll wake up remembering I had a vivid dream, mm -hmm. but not really remember much of the dream, right. if any. Right. That that happens to, to a lot of us uh, because our lives are so busy and frenetic and we have so much on our minds and we wake up and we've had this wonderful image of, you know, us flying over the treetops of some magical garden. And then within five minutes of us waking up, we forget it. And it's upsetting. And we say, what was that? I know I was supposed to. So, so a very easy way to... Uh, to work through that is just to have a little notebook mm -hmm. and just to scratch down a few images when we wake up, and that will bring us back into the dream and we won't forget it. But dreams are really important. I, I think, I mean, Carl Jung, he analyzed over 20,000 dreams in his career, and he thought that they were the most important way to try and understand what was going on below the surface and uh, in, in a way to, to guide whatever type of treatment or therapy someone needed would be revealed by what they were dreaming about one of the criteria for being a good therapist is being a good listener what makes someone a good listener well i that is that's a great question and it's something that i've really had to work on uh, for uh, is a good listener allowed to interrupt a good listener should allow someone to 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 complete their sentence before they before they interrupt um, but listening really is about it's a lesson in staying present and if you can really be present with someone and really honor them and and fixate on them and drown out everything that else is going uh, on around it is uh, it's really a wonderful exchange. I think that people are so intent on getting their opinion heard and feeling validated through um, someone else agreeing with them that oftentimes they will interrupt or they will cut someone off. And But being a good listener is really, it's an art. And it's something that uh, takes a long time to develop. I'm, as a psychologist, I feel I'm a pretty good listener but becoming a father a few years ago, I've really had to hone in my listening skills even more. And I have two uh, wonderful children, uh, oh. a, a six-year-old daughter named Maxine and uh, a three-year-old son named Sebastian. And There's a big difference of being a, do a doctor and listening to somebody 
talk about his or her problems and being a father. And, That's true. And trying to deal That's with true. something on a very personal level. Do, do you think that it helps to have overcome serious problems to be able to help others with similar problems? Do you, do you think your own battle with alcohol and drug addiction has informed the way that you treat your patients? I do, very much so. The uh, In depth psychology, we talk about the archetype of the wounded healer. And it is something that all psychologists and all therapists share is that we heal from our own wounding. The best therapists heal from our own wounding because we understand what it feels like. And we are able to convey, convey that not only theoretically and philosophically, but also energetically to our patients. And to really feel empathy uh, for another person, one has to have experienced something similar to what they've experienced. And, 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 and trying to treat someone for things that you have not gone through yourself poses uh, more, there are more obstacles in the way from you really being able to fully understand them. Do you tell your patients that you've had this past life? I do. And what's interesting about this process right now, my book came out today. Today it is launched into the world. And of course, many of the patients that I work with, they know that I've written a book but they don't really know the history, and they're about to know a lot, which I'm not ashamed about anything that I've done or gone through, but I hope that they don't, it doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. And if they do, um, you know, that, that, that is, uh, that's what will happen. And, uh, but it's, um, it's information that, that uh, I think hopefully will inspire people. The, the underlying message of the book is really one of hope, um, that no matter how far you have fallen, or however, however far you've, you've gone down, uh, that you can always climb back out and have a good life. And uh, I'm, I'm living proof of this, you know, from I was homeless for a while in Venice. I was uh, destitute. I was addicted. And now I uh, I'm a doctor of psychology, and I'm married, and I have two children, and mm-hmm. it's uh, and a published book, and a published book, and it's and it's a story that that anyone can have, and so I just want to any of you listeners that are out there that are struggling with addiction, it's not something that is unsolvable, it's not something that's incurable, it's there not something that you are, are going to have for the rest of your life. I, my tips for them, um, you know, I believe that the what has affected me most in my journey into sobriety is having a connection to spirituality. So whatever it is that they want to um, incorporate into their life that, that would help them with that, I'm not talking about uh, any kind of organized religion, but that is certainly a, a direction that you can move in, but spirituality meaning... Um, anything that is good for you that you can bring into your life. Um, I think that a conversation can be spiritual. Uh, reading a passage that inspires you can, can be spiritual. Walking on the beach with your dog can be spiritual. Spending time with your children. Um, anything that is healthy, that helps you grow, informs you, helps you learn, and, um, and propels you forward in life is a spiritual act. So. What about uh, the families and loved ones who want to help someone with drug or alcohol addiction but don't know where to begin or who have tried many times to help them overcome addiction but have come to feel that they're just wasting their financial and emotional resources? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fine line that families have to walk because they practicing tough love is very scary because you say, well, if I turn my back on my child or on my... Uh, brother on my family member, and then they were to go out and OD and kill themselves, I would never be able to forgive myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, families that get too involved uh, certainly have the tendency to enable the addict to keep giving them money or giving them a place to stay. And in my experience, it's really important for, at least in my own life and with many of the people that I've worked with, for an addict to... Um, to have to reach bottom before they can really, uh, everything really needs to be stripped away from them or most things before they really 
can um, find the strength to climb up from the bottom and start to get better. So what I would say to families is that certainly you want to do everything you can to keep your loved one safe, your child safe. Um, if there's a way to send them to treatment, to do that. But if this is a continuous thing that happens over years and years, at a certain point you have to walk away and let it run its course. And uh, even if it's, uh, even if you don't feel that you have any more to give, even if it's for a son or a daughter, or a husband or a wife, you just have to walk away. That's at a certain point, yes. yes. You, you close the book with these words. My story is not meant to be a cautionary tale, but a reminder that love transcends pain, that wounds are healed through friendship, and that hope resides just around the corner. I leave you with one last thought. No matter how far you've fallen, you can always rise up again. There's always a way out if you believe it's possible. And it is possible. I promise you that. I am living proof. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I truly believe that statement, that, um, that the, the human spirit has the ability to overcome great pain and great adversity and rise up again. And we see it over and over again in, in so many wonderful examples throughout history. And I'm just one of them. My story is, is, is a story that uh, is unique in the specifics of it, but it has been told a thousand times before. One of the problems uh, for many people who've gone through all of this is that they've ruined their health. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you could do about that, is there? Well, certainly it is difficult if you've ruined your health through addiction. Um, but you know, with the proper treatment and the proper physical care and the proper medication, there's a good possibility that you'll be able to improve your health mm -hmm. significantly over time. Carter Stout. His book is Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places, published by Health Communications Incorporated. And uh, Dr. Stout, it has been a great pleasure having you on our show. Oh, it's been so great. Thank you for a wonderful interview. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and also our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we invite your comments to on all of those sites. We are preempted tomorrow for special WBAI programming. But we will be back on Thursday with Noor Armani and several of the directors from the Socially Relevant Film Festival. And we hope to see you then. Mm -hmm.